I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is James Swigert, author and motivational speaker. His new book is If You Say So. Due to familiar dysfunction, the holiday season can be extremely stressful. Old dynamics can be triggering. While some may chalk these feelings up to the holiday blues, 64% of people with mental illness report holidays make their conditions worse. James Swigert explains how to create healthy boundaries for ourselves this holiday season. Over the past 25 years, he's built, run, and sold several multi-million dollar award-winning production companies. He's a storyteller who was able to understand that how he was telling his own story and the power behind his words could shape his life. Having survived addiction, depression, homelessness, suicide, and molestation, he's now teaching others through his work as a mentor, motivational speaker, and life cheerleader. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. So first question, James, is uh, how are you going to do that? I know the statistics are, as you describe them, during the holiday season, what, from Thanksgiving to New Year's, anxiety, depression, stress, more people suffer from that, and even suicide. So how do you mitigate that? I know, uh, let, let's talk about that. Obviously, that's what your book is about. But um, so how do you do sure. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, it, it is. You know, uh, uh, we we actually refer to it as the Bermuda Triangle, where you've got Thanksgiving, you know, Christmas or Hanukkah and New Year's. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's it, we're kind of entering that zone. And I think that uh, for me, and this is why I wrote the book. It's for me, it was really about uh, r- realizing that I had stories that I had been telling myself about that time of year. Uh, based on actual events that happened uh, when I was younger. And essentially what, what, what I was doing is I was telling myself lies. Uh, a lot of the stories that I was looping in my head uh, well into adulthood, long after those events had occurred, uh, I was keeping those thoughts and feelings alive uh, by telling, me, telling myself stories um, that I hate the holidays. And I would, that would actually come out of my mouth that I hate the holidays. Holidays are so stressful. And, and when I'm saying those things, it really starts with what's coming out of my mouth because I'm then setting the tone. Uh, I'm manifesting my own reality with the words that I choose. And so the first thing I have to do is I have to stop how I'm framing this time of year. And it's actually a really wonderful time of year where we get to connect with others. Um, I think what it does is it, it comes down to, um, as you mentioned earlier, about setting healthy boundaries. It's like, who am I connecting with, you know, and how am I doing that? So I really have to start with how I'm speaking about it, because if if I am, you know, because it's really the universe will give you whatever story you tell it. And if you're going to tell a horror story, <laughs> there you go. And And we all know those people who... Are, you know, their cell phone screen is shattered and they're late to work and the car is always broken down and we're never going to make it and they never make it. And, and you watch the stories they tell and you watch the things that come out of their mouth. And oftentimes it's starting with that. So are you <laughs> saying, so James, wanna, that it's, are you saying that yeah. it's like, it, it's a setup. It's a, you set yourself up. Your expectations are that it's going to be horrible. You tell your, that's the narrative. You tell that story and that's what happens. It is horrible because you don't make good choices, I would assume, either, if that's your expectations can be terrible. Um, and, but it's our, it's, we're creating our own horrible holiday. And, but we have choices so that, that we have to recreate the narrative. That's what you're saying, right? Exactly. And you just, you just hit the nail on the head. We have the choice. And, and for a long time, I didn't know I had a choice. You know, I just thought I was a victim of circumstance and that that was the way it was always going to be because that's the way it had always been, right? I had evidence. But the problem was <laughs> that, that I was keeping that story alive. And, um, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge follower and fan of Don Miguel Ruiz of the Four Agreements. And his first of the Four Agreements is be impeccable with your word. Never speak against yourself or others and always speak in the direction of truth and love. And when I, you know, I came from a family that grew up on Mad Magazine, so we were very cynical and sarcastic and, you know, being the youngest of 12, you know, there's, everyone was really good with, with, with jabbing people verbally and that sort of thing and just being really hurtful and mean and, 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 and that, 
language entered my head and I would speak to myself that way. I would, I would be so hard on my, you know, nobody's harder on me than I am. And, but I, I want to stop you know, there because a family of 12, yeah. I, I'm not going to let that go. How did, uh, yeah, <laughs> surviving in a family of 12, how did you do that? Uh, uh, take us back because obviously that colored your expectations as you're talking about for yourself and for, obviously for the holidays too. But brothers, sisters, parents were there or not? Or talk to us about that. Sure. Uh, I was the born the youngest of seven children uh, from my mother and my father, and there were uh, six boys and one girl. And I was the I was about six years from my sister, who was the next oldest sibling. So I wasn't really part of the plan. Uh, and if um, you know, just after I was born, my father left my mother for another woman. So my, we were you know a single mother with seven children, six boys and a girl, and then. Uh, about six or seven years later, she remarried uh, another man who brought five more kids to the to the show, <laughs> and so uh, and that was four boys and a girl. So there, all in all, there were ten boys and two girls, and uh, so there were fourteen people who were moving into a three bedroom house, which was kind of crazy. And and uh, yeah, pandemonium ensued, <laughs> and, and uh, you know there was just a lot of you know with a merger like that, as you can imagine, there was a lot of dysfunction. Everyone acting out. Um, you know, I had kind of gotten abandoned, if you will, left, you know, um, in, in my book, in the book, I talk about being left at a gas station and the family, not even knowing that I wasn't in the station wagon as about a, a five-year-old boy and they had driven away and, and, uh, the, the gas station attendant had to call the CHP to pull over the car to tell them that they had forgotten the kid. Uh, so it was that kind of thing, you know, it was a little bit of herding cats. And, and, um, um, so as a result, uh, you know, you just, two parents cannot properly distribute the sufficient amount of love and nurturing across 12 kids. It was, everybody was on survival mode. You know, um, times were hard, money was tight, obviously. And, uh, um, you know, so you're going to have, you're going to have people not getting what they need in that scenario. And so, um, as a result, you know, Christmas wasn't about, you know, receiving a lot of gifts. Essentially, you had a, you had a, uh, somebody who was giving, you know, we would draw names out of a hat and you would pick a person and get that person a gift because there just wasn't enough for everyone to get gifts. Um, so it was that type of scenario and, and, and just kind of living in this place of scarcity and lack and, you know, just by and surviving. And, and so because the holidays had been so strained, especially financially for my parents, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as enjoyable of a, of, you know, it appeared that everyone else was, was, was having a Merry Christmas or in Happy Hanukkahs and all of that. And, and, and kind of knowing inside of our home, you know, we were, we weren't, uh, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of money and, and, uh, you know, we grew our own vegetables and in order to feed ourselves and we collected cans, bottles and newspapers constantly. And we all had paper routes and jobs and <clears throat> all started working at about 10. And so it was, um, you know, my perception was that we were poor, you know, and, and so that was this, this kind of idea that I lived with about the holidays. So, um, you know, even when those circumstances actually, yeah, when this circumstances, the real circumstances or the reality of your circumstances didn't exist, you weren't living with 12 or 11 siblings. Right. Um, but the emotional stuff was still there. I mean, how did you get out of that? How did you, first of all, how did you survive it? And second of all, how did you detach yourself from just the chaos uh, to be able to go to school, graduate? And, uh, well, I, I read your bio and do all the kinds of things and the, you know, the achievements that you've been able to accomplish. So how did, how did you do that? I, at first it was, you know, the way I coped, I mean, I found drugs and alcohol when I was 12 years old and that was my medicine. That was my survival, uh, mechanism through, um, you know, through until I got thrown out of the house and, and, uh, um, you know, that's how I coped. And then also my art, I would escape into my art and, you know, drawing and sketching is, is really something I was drawn to at a very early age. So I knew I was, I was a creative mind. And so that helped me kind of escape some of the insanity uh, in the house and, and, you know, some of the violence and the constant conflict when you've got that many people living in a small space. Obviously, there's a lot of friction. And, and so, I, I, you know, my thing was to kind of hide out and lay low. And, and then when I found, you know, drugs and alcohol and, and then I escaped into that. 
but then, you know, once, once I was thrown out of the house and trying to learn how to survive out in the world while, uh, um, while suffering from addiction uh, uh, with alcohol and drugs and eventually homelessness and depression, and then I had, you know, attempted suicide at 25. So, so I, didn't, I didn't cope <laughs> very well. Uh, it was about how I was just kind of surviving uh, through that. Um, but and what about it, your siblings? Was there any one of your siblings that was able to, that was supportive? I mean, out of all those, because that's a lot of people that, and that yeah. you know, that, you, yeah. Yeah, I, it, there, there were, yes, my, there were, uh, there were certain siblings, but they were all so much older that they were moving on and they had lives and they were going to college. And, and so I was a little bit uh, kind of left behind. Uh, and um, so you know, I would, I, I, my imagination was my best friend, escaping into my imagination through my art, uh, through painting and drawing. And, um, and, 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 and also too, I was, I was kind of one of those people that learned very early on how to hide out in plain sight. Right. And so there were plenty of people around, but I felt very alone. And I'm sure there's plenty of people listening who can relate to that. And that's, that's kind of bringing that back to the holidays. Um, you know, what I had to ultimately do, the big shift for me was at 25 when I had some, some incredible men and women find me, um, after my uh, suicide attempt and pick me up and dust me off. And at that point I made a decision to be clean and sober. Uh, and, um, and, and I've been clean and sober now for 30 years. And as a result of, uh, it took a while for the dust to kind of clear out of my head and for me to start to kind of employ certain tools, uh, one of which is changing my story, changing how I was, you know, because I would, I, I constantly felt unlovable and broken and uh, alone. And, you know, uh, I'm always sick. That was another thing that would come out of my mouth because I dealt with a lot of uh, intestinal problems, gastrointestinal problems, as well as sinus problems, which are the kind of the two things that come out of dysfunctional families and abusive families are asthma and ulcerative colitis. And I had both. And so, um, you know, I struggled with my health issues and, 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 and again, felt broken. Um, and I'm sure there's people um, dealing with health issues that are listening that, that can relate to that. You're just like, God, I'm always sick. And I would say that out loud. And, and, and if you say so, you, you know, I was always sick. And, and, and so what I do now is, is after being able to change my story and really kind of not only just, just stay clean and sober and get by, you know, I, I tapped into a, a, a power and energy and a way of life that has helped me to not only just get by, but to actually become amazing and, and, and be successful and be fulfilled and be happy. Uh, and, and, and I believe that's what the universe wants for us. We're not here to just get by. We're here to, to, we're here to clear out the mess, get flat with the universe so that we can move forward and, 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 and go be uh, our best selves. And, and, you know, it's, it's sometimes when we're looking on social media, we can start to compare ourselves to other people, right? And it looks like everyone else, uh, you know, it's, it has an amazing life when we're sitting at home alone on the computer, you know, lurking on social media. And it's just, you know, it's just not the reality. You know, and, and that's another story that we get caught up in. And, and, you know, what I tell people that I'm coaching is whenever we compare ourselves to anyone else, we lose every time. You know, I just cannot get in that game of comparing myself because I will lose every time, whether I'm looking down or looking up, I, I will lose every time. So, Why um, do you think it's so difficult? Because that, 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 I mean, I think you that hit the nail on the head. I think all of us do that, as you say, either looking up or looking down. And now, of course, with social media, it's almost impossible not to do that. How do we not do that? I mean, you say don't do it, but in in reality, in, in, in actuality, yeah. stay away from you, that. It doesn't. You're you know. right. Yeah, hundred percent right. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? And I think that this is where what what happened for me at 25 was it, uh, this 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 being so down and destitute and wanting to take my own life. The desperation created this opening, and it was a vacuum, and that was. Uh, you know, I was raised Catholic in that large family, uh, but I had my own issues with the Catholic Church. I didn't agree that they wouldn't let, because my father left my mother, she wasn't able to go. And, and the Catholic Church is very important to my mother. And when my father left her, she wasn't able to go receive Holy Communion. And I was like, wait a minute, it wasn't her fault. This guy left, you know, and they wouldn't, because she was divorced, she wasn't allowed to receive communion, which was really important to her. And I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, and, and, and the number of other things we could go on. There's a litany of things that my issues. And so while I believed in something, uh, some sort of, you know, great spirit of the universe, I wasn't sure how to tap into that or how to, how to kind of nurture that relationship. And so 
at 25, these men and women that helped me, they really, uh, I was able to kind of uh, open my heart and mind to accept spirituality into my life. You know, and these, these people were, there were Christians in there and there were Jews in there and all these different people, but they all believed in this single idea of a spiritual being that was about love, compassion, forgiveness, service. Uh, it was a just, it was a just, and I, and I, and I tapped into this. So I, I didn't get caught up in the politics of, of spirituality, which is what I think kind of religion tends to be. I really tapped into okay, what are these Jewish people and these Christian people and these Muslims, what are they all really looking at? And so rising above religion, to me, is the spirituality. And that's, and I, I told somebody one day, I said, we're all, I was trying to explain this concept. I said, we're all looking through different windows at the same sun. And ultimately, it was tapping into, you know, in, in, in Jerry and Esther Hicks, they just talk about it, about source energy, right? It's that, it's the, it's the energy of the universe. It's what connects you and I and your listeners it's what connects all of us, right? There are atoms and molecules flowing between all of us, no matter where you are in the world or in the universe. And it's energy changing form constantly. And, 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 and I was able to kind of tap into that energy. And, 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 you know, as I said to someone, I said, when you take a step in the direction of, of, of love and goodness, the universe will start to get behind you and move you forward. You know, that, that, the obstacles in front of us are never greater than the power behind us when we're tapped into spirituality, because that's what connects us. And, you know, I, I think to be truly spiritual is, is to not be divisive, but to be inclusive. And so um, I think, you know, so, so that's what I had to do. I had to really tap into that because like you said, it's easier said than done, but it has to start with, with the words. It has to start with how I'm, you know, speaking about myself and, even people I work with with cancer, you know, I, I tell them, I said, stop saying my tumor and my cancer. You know, you got to change the language because it's like, if you say so, that's going to be yours forever. So you stop saying that, you know. And what and do you it's, say? It's, 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 if you're not it's, saying my it's, tumor it's, it's, and my, yeah, what, we, uh, that's a good example. So if you're not saying this is a, you know, a, my tumor. Yeah, it's a tumor that can leave because tumors do leave, mm-hmm. right? It's a tumor. When you're saying my tumor, you're just you're taking an ownership of that that you are in possession of that and thus not really able to let it go, because when I stopped saying I have chronic ulcerative colitis, when I was not in uh, a flare-up, that's not serving me. That's not serving me at all. And so what I had to do is I had to change the language that I used to suffer from ulcerative colitis. I used to suffer from asthma attacks. And as a result, I haven't had, I just, as a result of that in healthy living, there's a lot more to it, right? But as a result of that, uh, changing and framing that in my mind, uh, it's in the rearview mirror. It's not something that I'm keeping present, you know? Um, so language is critical. That, uh, it, yeah, how we define things is which, what we're talking about, changing the narrative. You really have to be aware, right? I mean, you have to be aware of how you say it and the impact that it has. I mean, I think that cancer example is really a good one. So that's how you begin to change the narrative, I assume, right? I mean, it doesn't happen overnight, um, and then that begins no, to change. No, it doesn't happen overnight. You're, you're exactly right. It does not happen overnight, and that's why I wrote this book. It's a very simplified way, even just the title itself. A friend of mine, uh, when he read the book, and he's like, I love that title. That's amazing. He called me a week after he read the book. He goes, I've used that line on myself five times this week (laughs) because he caught himself in old stories. And so it's a very, very simple vernacular to be able to, to, um, you know, and this isn't for, not everyone is ready for this, right, to be able to uh, pivot and, and, and watch their own conversations, right? Not everyone, some people are just completely believe everything they think. Uh, and, and I think we can see who those people are. So what I did is I, I tried to really boil this down to its simplest form so that, so that people can understand, as you said, indicated at the beginning of the show, that you have a choice, right? You have a choice. You can, you can, you're, you know, you can have a, have a negative narrative and, and, and let that dictate how you feel and what you think and where you go. Or, you know, conversely, you might as well turn that into a positive story, right? Because there's just as much of a chance of it turning out swimmingly. Because the power of the spoken word is, is there's so much power in it. I mean, if you think about it, Adolf Hitler almost exterminated a race of people using the power of the spoken word for the negative and for hate. 
That's huge. You know, it's interesting you should say so that because you're know, giving that example because of 180 from that. I was in Boston this weekend and I went to the JFK Library and Museum, which I hadn't been to for some reason. And I spent a lot of time in Boston in the past. Anyway, I spent three hours mm-hmm. there and the power of, and there are so there's many, many videos of his speeches, which I don't really remember. I was young. I was, you know, young then. So I didn't really listen to him. And of course, in the same way I'm going to now and the power of his words, I, it just struck me, and it, as you're saying this, um, he was able to tr- transform so many lives and people in a, such a very short time in a very positive way, the opposite, obviously, of a- Adolf Hitler. But anyway. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Just Dr. another Martin example. Luther King. I mean, yeah. if you go to Ebenezer Baptist Church in, uh, in Atlanta, you know, they play his recordings of some of his sermons. And you sit in that church and his voice echoing in there and his words, I mean, again, just so spiritual and so inclusive and so powerful. And, and yes, so, you know, conversely, imagine what we can do if, in, in the way of, of, of truth and love and goodness and positivity. And that's how powerful it is. And so, so you know, one, you know, as I mentioned earlier, no one's harder on me than I am. And so one time I was beating myself up and I called a friend of mine trying to get out of this funk. And he said, James, sit down, get out a piece of paper and a pen. He said, write down every word I say. He said, do. So I wrote down, do not believe everything you think. And then he hung up on me and I (laughs) sat there and I looked at what I had just written about, do not believe everything you think. And I had to then think about that, right? Because I was buying into old stories that I was broken, that I was unlovable, and they're just lies because it's not true. Everyone here, everyone's story, every every listener right now, your story is valid. You are loved, you are complete, and you are whole. And when we're out there in the darkness, we just don't feel it or think it, but we are loved and we are complete and we are whole. And I'm here to help you change that narrative because it's just I, I was living an adult life based on misinformation. Do you have to, and, and, and let's say when you start this process, I'm being very, I guess, want to be practical about it. And you start this process, you you are changing the narrative. Do you have to sort of set aside time to always reevaluate what you're doing and how you're doing it? Not just keep on going. Yes. Oh, I changed the narrative. I've you know, I, I'm, I've made progress. Spend some time really, I, I say, always evaluating, I guess, because things do change. And so it's necessary to have that kind of awareness. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What about, yeah. oh, now we're talking about the holiday, I mean, we did. We don't have that much time left, but okay, we're talking about the holiday season, and people have these narratives, yeah. I guess we only have four minutes left, um, uh, that destroy their their holidays because they're thinking the old stuff and they're acting on it. So specifically, what can you do during, how do you, you know, I mean, I know one of the things, you know, you mentioned is um, toxic families, how you get away from, what, yeah. What, yeah, so how do you do that? Yeah, again, it, 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 it sounds it sounds easy and for some people it can be really, really challenging when they're just beginning this process of, of trying to change the story and trying to make a shift and make a choice. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's one of the concepts I talk about is detaching with love, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's that great Abraham Lincoln quote, that people are as happy as they make up their minds to be. And it is a choice. And I was, I, I, one of my brothers called me last night and he's 69 years old and he's arguing with another brother who's 71 years old. And I was laughing because they've had this squabble going on their whole lives. And, <laughs> and, um, but one of them kind of picks the fight and then, and then plays the victim when the other guy, you know, gets angry at him when they talk politics. And I, you know, and I, I said to him, I said, Bobby, I said, you have a closet in your house and there's a gorilla in the closet with a bat. <laughs> And every time you open the closet door, the gorilla hits you over the head with the bat. And you keep acting surprised and you keep playing the victim. I said, but you keep opening the closet door, you know? And so you've got to stop opening the closet door. And I think that that's a metaphor that's very simple that people can then relate to to go, oh, wait a minute. 
I have a part in this. I'm inviting this unhealthy behavior or these unhealthy people uh, into my life or into my world. And, and again, we have a choice and we can set healthy boundaries. We can detach with love. When you're going to see your family, don't stay with the family. Get a, get a cheap hotel room. And, and, and you, you have to, I had to monitor the amount of time I spent in the family home because there's a lot of drinking, there's a lot of dysfunction, a lot of, you know, arguments and judgment and shame. And so, okay, I'll go over for a couple hours, but then I'm going to go to the park for the rest of the day, you know, in the middle of the day or what have you, or uh, the library. But I just, I you don't have to come for a week and stay in your own room. In other words, you, that's (laughs) (laughs) exactly don't, there are, we kept getting going back and forth, not going back and forth, but it's all about choices. And just as you described, and those simple kinds of things, and they seem simple, but they're not. Yeah. Stay at a motel, go for dinner and leave. And you, that's, setting boundaries. Two minutes left. I could go on and on, but if you, because I want to mention, say the name of the book again, if you say so, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Give us a website we can go to, one minute left, uh, to get more information about you and about the book. Yeah. Sorry. So I'm so sorry. Uh, Jamesweigert.com. It's S-W-E-I-G-E-R-T. You can buy the book through that. There's also an Audible, which I I read the book uh, for Audible too, so you can get the author's voice on that. Terrific. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. Thank, thank you for having me, Catherine. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Diana Capp, author and business journalist. Her new book is Girls Who Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business. After Forbes magazine published its now infamous list of the 100 most innovative leaders and included 99 men and just one woman, award-winning journalist Diana Capp thought, "Mm, hell no. So she penned an open letter to the magazine's executives, enlisting at the time 37 innovative female CEOs to sign on, and therein launched uh, hashtag innovation for all. Cap's book is a celebration of triumph and perseverance Perseverance that includes the story how each entrepreneur made it big, along with excellent advice to her teenage self, as well as material useful for enterprising young women and girls. She's written about education and entrepreneurialism for media outlets such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Elle, Oprah Magazine, and many more. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Diana. Hi, Catherine. It's great to be here. Okay, here's a real inspiring book for young women, which 
we need. Um, obviously, 31 CEOs who mean business. So I, you, I guess I've already described your inspiration for the book, right? Although I, I, I was online and I think one of the things that you said, you, the, I guess the defining moment was hearing Sarah Blakely's story of how I built this. This was a podcast she had. So talk to us about that. That sort of, it seems to me, sort of got you running and uh, thinking about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's really kind of been two big inspirations for writing the book. The first is um, I have a 13-year-old daughter, Emma, who, you know, she popped out of me basically with her hands on her hips ready to issue orders. She was um, a powerful little thing when she was one years old. She was ready to lead an army or a nation and definitely a business. And when you have a child like that, it sort of causes you to ask yourself the question, you know, what's going on in America today that so few women make it to the top of the business world? And around the time that that was on my mind, I I was listening to these How I Built This podcast series on NPR, which is, I recommend it highly. It's fantastic. So Guy Raz, the producer there, was uh, interviewing Sarah Blakely, and she is just this firecracker of a woman full of moxie, and she's telling the story about how she, you know, comes up with her invention one day when she's feeling, like, hot in her pantyhose. She cuts off the legs. Within a week's time, she's driving around North Carolina, um, three states away from where she lives, looking for a manufacturer who might make some prototypes for her. She cold-called her way into the Neiman Mark store to get them to carry her product. And when she went to visit the product for the first time to see how it looked in store, she notices that it's being kept you know, way in the corner, she calls it like the hosiery hinterland. So she she literally jumps into the elevator of the Neiman Marcus, runs down the block to Target, buys a small rack, and she brings it inside in her coat. She sets it up at the register, and she moves all her products right to the front where it will be seen and purchased. And it's just that kind of... I don't ask permission. I don't wait for someone to tell me no. You know, she's faking it till she makes it kind of, you know, view of the world. And I, when I heard her telling this story on how I built this, all I can think of is my daughter has to hear this story. This is like everything she needs to know about how to operate and how to, you know, turn so many no's into yeses. So I thought... You know, young girls are not listening to How I Built This. They don't really listen to podcasts. They're not reading Fast Company Magazine and Inc., the kind of places that are writing about some of these women entrepreneurs. So that was the concept was, you know, they are getting a lot of um, opportunities to read about historical pioneers like Amelia Earhart or Sojourner Truth or Ray Jameson but they are not learning about the pioneering women of today. Why so is I'm going to stop you? Why so aren't Why aren't they? Why isn't in this in Why isn't this in their curriculum along with Amelia Earhart? But then, uh, you know, fast forward to today. Why don't I mean you have your daughter is how old now? Now she's fourteen. So and, I mean, yeah. It's, you know, sometimes schools bring in speakers or, you know, maybe she'll hear something on the news. But I guess my point is that there there haven't been places where someone's collecting the stories of the young entrepreneurial women of today who are, you know, remaking industries, whether it's, you know, apparel, turning what used to be a buying only opportunity into rentals to save the environment or whether it's, you know, Anne Wojcicki creating genetic pests so we can all have our own personal health information like she's doing at 23andMe. These are stories that just haven't been put in one place so that they're accessible for girls, teens, and young women. 
I, you know, I, I make some observations. I live in the city, in, in New York City, and I, I watch some of these, the mothers of young girls and, and you know, and in, live in a neighborhood where there are a lot of young people. And I'm a baby boomer, and maybe you can answer this question, but I see them dressed up in these uh, princess outfits and sparkly stuff and, you know, tiaras on, and I'm wondering... Is that uh, is that taking a step backwards or it's not taking a step forward? I mean, I because that impacts young girls if you're all dressed up like that and and it doesn't really put you in a position to think of yourself as a CEO of a company, uh, does it? Well, I mean, I think everyone should be dressing up in whatever way they think is you know compelling and they should be able to use their imagination and have their own heroes, but I think we need to show girls that there's all different ways to be powerful and compelling, and it's not just about beauty on the outside. It's about being creative and inventive, and um, yeah, I mean, we're living, obviously, in a society that still has huge cultural pressure for young girls to care about appearance and be cute and um, do well in school and, you know, all this kind of perfectionism that is, you know, I would argue is getting in the way of them, you know, thinking that their brains are what really matter and ideas are what matter and being your own person is what matters. I see some of these babies, little girl babies with those, and I call them silly, like ribbons around their head. They don't have hair, but, you know, they put a big bow on their head. Uh, yeah. That's right from the beginning. You're talking about when your daughter popped out, you knew that she was not, it doesn't sound like she's going to or be someone who has the bow around her head. But, yeah, I mean, I see, still see so much of that. I, I'm, I'm just throwing that in because I think it really does kind of, it could, I mean, yes, express yourself, but it really, what you wear and how people see you, defines, you know, how they perceive you makes a difference. So uh, I'm just it was it was interesting on on this past Saturday, I Uh ran a panel at a big girls festival that was for, um, you know, do it yourself and maker and stem kind of experiments. And this 11 year old girl has created a board game called Coder Bunny, which teaches the concepts of coding. things like sequencing and if-then statements that you you learn those concepts by moving around the board on the board game. But what she was talking about on the panel is the fact that when she was six or seven and she had this idea that she wanted to be a CEO, she went looking at Macy's for some kind of suit that she would wear. Um, And she said, you know, what's interesting is you can't find anything like that as a girl. Like, why is it that business attire is only for men? And, you know, doesn't that say something about who grows up to become a CEO? And it was really interesting. She kind of was making this connection between even clothing that's available for girls and then the images of what is, you know, makes a powerful leader is someone in kind of a business suit and how there's just nothing like that for girls. Coder Bunny, that's the name of the uh, game? That was the name of her game, yeah. yeah. And she's sold, she's sold 7,000 7, copies of this game on Amazon. Now it's time for her to go on Shark Tank. <laughs> um yeah. All right, let's talk about girls who run the world because you've got, obviously, you have these 31 women who mean business. Um, we, you talked, obviously, about Sarah Blakely's story. Who else? I mean, because let, let's talk about some of, of other ones who, whose stories are different than Sarah's, uh, but really yeah. very interesting. Yeah. So um, I chose, you know, a collection of women who – you know, I, I didn't, I wanted girls to be able to find sort of some connection to the women in the book. So I tried to have as diverse a group of women as I could find. Um, so I wanted women that, you know, haven't even gone to college or, you know, one woman came up through the military. There's women in the book who are classic immigrant stories. There's people that are, you know, very pedigreed that have come through MIT and Stanford and Harvard. Um, and others that went to Florida State University and Arizona State. So I um, 
I chose industries from construction to biotechnology. There's um, a packaging business, a stationary business, um, ice cream. I really wanted it to be broad, and I wanted it to have hard science in it. Um, I can tell you this amazing story of Emily Nunez Kavnes, whose business is Sword and Plow. And she was a senior at Middlebury College when she had this idea that um, she was, at the time, she was ROTC in the military, and she was seeing all the waste of um, military uniforms and parachutes and tents and bags that just get put into landfill every year. And she thought to herself, what if you could recycle this and give it a new life, something that's um, respectful because these uniforms have been used, you know, in, in a patriotic way. And so she started a bag company. She, um, she hires only veterans to do all the aspects of the business. And um, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting B Corps, which is a business that has like many bottom lines. It's, it's um, you know, it has to have a social benefit to get this designation, which is what hers does. That's a great story. So she, and she hires men and women. They, 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 they have to be veterans, but yeah, male and female she, both. And she has like a jewelry designer who's a veteran who's making um, necklaces and earrings out of old bullet casings. She um, uses the hardware on the bags, comes from, you know, welders that are, that are veterans and the, the manufacturing and the shipping organization that she uses is veteran owned and operated. So she's, she's been very thoughtful. And then she also gives a um, portion of her proceeds go back to veterans organizations. You know, uh, Diana, you it's said based it, out of Denver, Denver. Well, you, yeah. I, I think you just, you, as you described it, all of these women come from very different backgrounds, right? Education, uh, businesses, what, but what would you say is uh, the unifying or are there unifying values or strengths that they all have these 31 CEOs? Yeah. I mean, I, this word that I've been using a lot when I've been out on book tours, sort of what unifies them to me is moxie. And basically that means just being incredibly gutsy, having cojones, um, I'll tell you a story of Natasha Case. She is the founder and CEO of Cool House Ice Cream in Los Angeles. And she, she was in architecture, um, working in architecture for Disney. And at that time, there was a lot of layoffs going on, and it was just like a very depressing place to be working. So she got this idea, I'm going to make architecture-inspired ice cream and I'm going to bring it in to work for my, for my coworkers. And she got all this amazing feedback. And then when she decided she would actually try to turn it into a business, she, she didn't have the money to rent a retail location. So she thought, I will do it in a food truck. At that time, food trucks weren't trendy like they are today. And what she was able to find that she could afford on Craigslist was a mail truck, uh, like an old leftover mail truck someone was getting rid of that cost $4,800. And what she found when she got it is that the engine in it didn't even work. So she had the idea that AAA road service, when you sign them on, they will give you a 200-mile free tow anywhere. So she gets the truck towed, to Coachella, which is a very hip music venue in the desert, 200 miles outside of Los Angeles, where tons of young people come from music concert. And that was how she launched her business. And it was just this idea that, you know, she would buy the truck without an engine. She would come up with this idea to get it towed. She wouldn't worry about, you know, what am I going to do after that? to get the truck back to Los Angeles. It was like she sort of just went for it. And it was a huge success at Coachella, and she got written up in all these blogs and magazines, and that was the launch of Cool House Ice Cream. 
So it's not whether you can do it, but how are you going to do it? And it sounds like this is what it's these just women, how, yeah, and it's, how, yeah, and it's also just like just getting started. Like a lot of these women, they don't know how to do what they're doing. They tell me, I went to the University of YouTube uh, to learn how to, you know, arrange flowers. That was the girl, Christina Stemble from Farm Girl Flowers. She founded this business working out of her San Francisco tiny apartment. She's keeping buckets of flowers in her bathtub. She's looking at YouTube videos to learn how to cut the stems to keep the blooms alive for the longest amount of time and how to do these arrangements that she ended up wrapping in burlap and having um, delivered by bicycle uh, messenger. And, you know, she, she didn't know anything about how any of this worked. She, does, she didn't even go to college. And she says she, you know, she goes on online courses and she learns how to do, um, how to do her books, how to use Excel. Um, she said, you know, so much is available today that's um, very accessible. And so I would say, you know, these women are resourceful beyond all else. They figure things out as they go along. They don't wait to get started until they have it all perfect. They just dive in because really the only way to learn and to figure out your business is kind of trial and error. And that's what any entrepreneur will tell you. But you have your own story as well. I mean, you went to Stanford. You have an MBA from Stanford. What was that like? I, I mean, I, I don't know when you graduated, but uh, was the get you know getting into Stanford MBA program? I mean, that's that's very impressive. What was the ratio of men to women, and how did you fit in, or how did you feel you fitted fitted in at the time? Well, um, when I went to business school, it was about thirty percent women, and um, we studied mostly about men because in nineteen ninety five which was the year I entered the Sanford Business School, that year there was zero female CEOs in the fortune five hundred so that 's twenty five years ago, which isn 't very long. Um, but even with all this time that has passed since then, we still just have 33 female CEOs in the Fortune 500. It's 6% female. Um, you know, this past summer when, when one new woman got added, the Mary Winston, the CEO of Bed Bath & Beyond, and she was just an interim CEO, it was a headline-making event. Um, so I think that you know, I've really come to recognize, and I, and I felt this way when I was in Stanford Business School, and I feel that way today, the business world is largely male. Women have not it up into the kind of upper ranks very easily. Um, and so these entrepreneurial women who are founding their own companies, I think is a much easier way to break in than to work within corporate America, which seems to be so stuck in its ways um, and so slow to change. So, yeah, so I guess you're saying that's that's that moxie and that gutsiness and uh, being creative and saying I'm going to be successful, but not necessarily in that fast track to being CEO because maybe that's just not there right now. I mean, it will be. We hope it will be. So let's do the entrepreneurial I know the different business schools have sometimes have um, are noted for for sort of getting you into different kinds. Of, some of them like Wall Street or entrepreneurial or real estate. So uh, your experience at Stanford, what are they promoting to be the CEO of a big company or to become an entrepreneur or to get involved in some other area of business? Well, the, the year that I graduated from business school, which was 1996, that was um, when the Internet was really taking off. It was um, the very beginning of consumer businesses going on the Internet. And so a lot of people in my class um, being out in Silicon Valley and in this area where there were so many engineers and where many of those kinds of companies were getting going, um, that was definitely kind of a, 
a path that many were taking. Um, you know, I know there's always going to be people coming out of business school, go to consulting and go to Wall Street. But I think it's much more popular today to, um, you know, go to a startup and people are kind of intrigued by those kind of environments that are fast moving and very, um, you know, wild west, if you may. So I, I, I'm, um, I'm hopeful for women um, as we become sort of a society that's more entrepreneurial, that it will present new opportunities for women. The one big limiting factor right now is that women have a terrible time getting funding. So of every hundred businesses that venture capitalists fund, just two of them are female founded. So it's 2% of all the uh, $80 billion that goes annually um, into funding by venture capitalists is for female-headed businesses. Diane, is that because they don't know how to get the funding or just because there's prejudice and they don't want to fund businesses that women are running or or a combination of both? It's really, it's it's there's like so many different factors and I think it has to do with the venture capitalists who are largely male um, doing something that they term pattern matching, which is kind of looking for the same kinds of people and businesses that they've seen succeed in the past. They're trying to take as much risk out of their decisions as they can because they're trying to make money. And the women on the same hand are, you know, women typically um, lack confidence and do not make the big asks that men do. So when they go in and paint the picture of their business and what are, what's the, you know, 10 year possibility, they don't kind of paint the dream and sell the big idea and sell the big money making. They, you know, they're full of kind of caveats and, you know, giving kind of the, the worst case scenario. And that's something that a number of women venture capitalists have talked about and have said that they feel that real work needs to be done to help women entrepreneurs, you know, be more confident in selling themselves and their ideas um, because that really makes a difference when you're in a pitch meeting ask for money. That, it's a great uh, topic to end on. Uh, we have two more minutes left, so give us a website or websites we can go to for information about the book and what you are doing. Um, so I'm. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at, at Girls Who Run the World Book. I have a personal website www.dianacapp.com, and that's K-A-P-P. Um, you can find out a lot of information about the book and a lot of articles that I've written about. Um, I just did a piece in the Washington Post, How to Raise a Female CEO, and that has some of the background on, you know, how were these girls raised, what kind of parenting did they have, um, what were some of the factors that really made a difference. That's great. Diane, Diana, Diana Cap, Girls Who Run the World. Great talking to you today. I learned a lot of great new... Great to talk to you, yeah, Catherine. Great. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 